Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. We've cleared the schedule. We've made some room. This week, it's all about the regulator. It's definitely a reportable event. It's all coming up. How do you how do you how do you decide what's risky? Is it you know is it is is a provider inherently risky because it's small or is it inherently risky because of the sorts of students it it, it recruits or is it risky because it's sort of it's not it's not doing its processes properly to produce the outcomes that are desirable or or it's not able to articulate that and you know that's a sort of that's that's a bit of a journey I think. That... Welcome to a special edition of The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and this week the Office for Students, England's higher education regulator, have published their registration process and outcomes for 2019-20. And before you could say a 600 word blog, Team Wonky were going through the document and there is a lot in there to discuss so we are recording this special episode to take you through the key themes and points of interest. As this is a special episode, we have take, we have broken from tradition and we have two of Team Wonky here to discuss the key themes and the outcomes and we're going to serve you up that lovely analysis that I know you all love. So we've got Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Hello, Debbie. Hi, Rachel. And we have Wonky's associate editor, Mr. Jim Dickinson. Hello, Jim. Hello. Hello. Right. Let's get straight into this. The new figures from the Office for Students, or OFS, have been published in an analysis of its registration process. So, Jim, give us the overview of this one, please. Okie dokie, yes. So, um, it, it, before the dawn of all time, when David <laughs> when David Willits was uh, Higher Education Minister and there was no prospect of legislation, um, a bunch of uh, sort of uh, bodies were brought together to form a kind of committee to work out what regulation there was and what there wasn't. And after about two years, everybody worked out that there were massive holes in the regulatory process as you shifted from the idea of um, a sort of funder to the idea of students paying with their uh, tuition fee loan vouchers. And so the Higher Education and Research Act steered through Parliament then by Joe Johnson, created a, a regulator that we've all come to know and love called the Office for Students. And one year into the initial provider registration process, uh, the idea was that once everyone had, that had initially applied tumbled onto the register, we would get a report into what had happened in that initial process. And that initial process was supposed to test a bunch of the regulatory conditions uh, to, uh, to sort of work out whether or not people had made it on and if um, they were under closer scrutiny as a result of just about making it on. That process has turned out to be a bit late for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Providers would say that some of the uh, requirements have been very difficult to understand and that they've had difficulty interacting with the registration team in Bristol. OFS would say, well, lots of people's applications were incomplete and lots of people didn't do as they were told in the guidance. But whichever end you believe, and I suspect it's a bit of a mixture of the two, uh, OFS was unable to hit its sort of initial 
this August the 1st uh, deadline to get everyone on the register. And so now a couple of months late, really, and even with some uh, people having applied to register, not having uh, had decisions yet, we now have a report that tells us what has gone on uh, in year one. Now, what OFS is really keen to stress in the sort of press release that sort of um, covers this uh, report uh, today is that it has taken a whole bunch of action in relation to a range of things. So access and participation is a theme, other issues to to, to do with student outcomes and, and, and a whole bunch of things to do with sort of management, leadership and governance. And, and we'll talk about those at least briefly uh, when we dive in shortly. Uh, but what it's done is it has summarised in this report big themes that have come out of that initial assessment process and also summarise some of the stats around its interventions and its interventions which we cheekily described on the site the other week as sort of provisional bronze silver and gold interventions can range from getting a letter through to being under enhanced monitoring through to a sort of public condition of registration through to not being allowed on the register at all and fining is in there too and we have some stats uh, and broadly there is there's barely a provider uh, big or small established or challenger that hasn't had some kind of um, regulation thrown at it um, and I guess fairly frustratingly what we don't know because OFS tends to treat all of the providers on a level playing field and as if they're kind of all the same uh, we don't know where they focus on some themes whether that's old universities newer universities challenger providers FE colleges and so on except, except in a few cases so we just have headline stats and as I say the big story is the story OFS wants us to hear is it has taken tough action in relation to a whole range of things. Debbie what was your, what's your hot take on it it's uh what do you think the OFS's kind of messages are in this? Well there is I mean this this um effort to say we are you know we're, we're coming down very strongly and, and and of course most of this doesn't make it through to the public register so we only know where providers are under enhanced monitoring conditions we don't know if for example they've been asked to uh you know rewrite their student protection plan three times and that sort of thing and you know you could argue, you could arguably say that that's reasonable the areas where uh there's been quite a lot of act ex extra activity in terms of um, asking providers to resubmit or sending them letters saying we need we need this from you on an ongoing basis or, or we want you to you know complete an improvement plan and, and look at it again um, are in access and participation um, in quality and, 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 and particularly student outcomes um, and in governance and, and management and governance these appear to be the areas that OFS has identified as being uh, weak but I think you know when you look at the tone of this report you really have to apply some pinches of salt here because there is this sense I think that we're either talking about and this is where Jim's point about not knowing which providers we're talking about because it's all it, it is the, the report is written as if um, OFS was surprised to discover that you know providers in general don't seem to know how to make a submission to the regulator um, and they have fallen very short of <laughs> having of, never of done it before <laughs> of, of the quality standards expected and I think you know and, and, and providers have sort of said well look you know we, we've, we've we've asked for guidance the guidance we've been given um you know, we, we, we've we've not necessarily been able to make exact sense of it, and we've kind of uh, we, we, and and I don't know whether providers have said, 
um, oh, well, just, you know, sling in all the stuff we used to do anyway and see what happens, or whether they've kind of made honest efforts in the most cases to try and, and comply with the guidance, but but then fallen short against standards that were never kind of fully articulated in the first place, um, or whether actually what we're talking about is most providers being, you know, doing doing fine, but newer providers who who particularly haven't aren't used to this sort of regulation and maybe kind of doing this thing you know very much from the ground up with very small teams uh without knowing that it's very hard to know what what's really gone on here mm. i think was it the quote in the uh, document which was a number of providers were not ready to be regulated yeah 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 that's, yeah i think it's really interesting because you know it's a bit like when you throw uh, exams at students right so there's a debate about whether or not you're testing innate talent or whether you're testing what they've learned right and then there's a debate about whether or not people can learn how to do well in exams uh, and so whether you're testing either of those things is different to whether you're testing people's just ability to do exams. So if you think about this, you know, in some cases, providers might have been, you know, innately really good at all of the things that have emerged as the standards, the sort of baseline standards. In other cases, providers might say, if you told us what the baseline standards were and gave us a bit of time, we would hit those standards. And then in other cases, actually, the, the, the report appears to critique people's ability to write up what they're doing and express it well rather than actually testing either of those things and and in the end you, you, you know any regulator i guess has got this uh, has got this really kind of tough set of questions to ask about how it regulates how it finds things out what evidence it requires how clear it needs to be about what the requirements are and so on and so on and certainly you know in in a, in a, in, a, in a minute or two we'll come on to some of the debates i guess about what the you know what the what, what the what, what the baseline standards really are yeah, there's quite a lot of things about saying, well, you know, you you said you said that you were compliant with the law, but you didn't explain how you knew you were compliant with the law, and you and you sort of think, hi, okay, well, and 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 anyone who's I guess, you know, been heavily involved in academic quality, who's been a registrar, who's got a kind of legalistic mind, which, you know, of course, many providers, you know, you need those sorts of people on staff, and you know, they're probably lots of accountable officers with those sorts of skills, but if you've not if, if, if you're not used to thinking in that way, it's a very specific way of thinking. Um, and it's, you know, say, saying, you know, we, 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 publish, we publish information to students and sort of saying, yes, but how do you know that the information you publish to students is like, well, because I can see it with my eyes on our website. I don't know what else to tell you. You know, if, if, you, approach the, if you approach this as a sort of from a common sense perspective, I think you might, you, you might, you might have fallen foul of the OFS's expectations. So why, why don't we talk about students for a bit? Jim, um... What does the report tell us uh, about things like outcomes, student protections, value for money, etc.? Yeah, so there's two big categories, really, um, of findings. And one of the categories, I guess, we would kind of swedge into what we might call students and their um, outcomes. And, And we've put a bit of detail up on the site this morning about some of the things that are in the uh, report uh, uh, to, to summarise as, as kind of tightly as possible. Um, followers of this will recall that it took a while for OFS to agree that the UK Quality Code should form the basis of their kind of sets of judgments about. Uh, positive outcomes for students Uh, and what they've done is kind of riff off bits of the quality code that relate to kind of student outcomes and they've picked three big indicators so student continuation and completion indicators so that's the kind of raw stats of the people who complete and continue when there's a multi-year course 
Um, other outcomes, uh, and in particular outcomes for students with different characteristics, so in, you know degree outcomes and so on, particularly where there are differentials between student groups uh, and graduate employment and so on. Now, I guess the big controversy here is B3. Uh, and what B3 looks at is principally continuation rates and then progression into further employment and so on. And OFS has got a bunch of data. And the reason this has been controversial is it's cropped up a few times in um, formal public conditions of registration. We hear on the rumour mill it's cropped up in a whole number of times in enhanced monitoring. And it's definitely cropped up in registration refusals. So in other words, this thing about we expect providers to produce outcomes for students is pretty big and pretty controversial and the reason it's controversial is that until today we've not known what the minimum is that you have to achieve so the official OFS position is you have to deliver positive outcomes for all students but obviously back here in the real world the idea isn't that literally every student gets a positive outcome but you do have to be attempting to deliver positive outcomes but no one has known what the minimums Ah, now I say today, when we're recording this, we haven't seen the minimums, although they've promised to publish them by the time (laughs) this podcast goes live. Uh, And throughout the course of the next few days, we'll try and dive into that. But what is clear is that one of the things that OFS have said is, if 75% of your students as a provider are getting outcomes that are of concern, that would trigger, you know, all sorts of interventions from OFS. And, And the trouble with that, I think, is that that significantly favours a really big provider that can, I'm not saying they do it on purpose, but that have got sufficient numbers of students such that the averages mean that you can have a large number of students not achieving some of those basics, but you can balance that with other types of provision. If, on the other hand, you're a really small provider, a local FE college only doing WP work, where with all the will in the world, it's actually quite tough, even if you're doing really good things to get people to complete, that might be much, 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 much harder to, you know, uh, secure those outcomes. And, And there's two ways of looking at this, right? Either you can say, look, if you're small, you're focused on WP, you're doing it in a local area, if you're not recruiting students of calibre, you're wasting their time and you're wasting their money, that's a perfectly legitimate point to have. But if the same number of students could be doing it at a large former polytechnic down the road, then what that's about is the same sort of student facing the same sort of risk of not completing, but one provider being told they can't do it and another provider being told they can do it as long as they balance it with a load of other provision. And that seems really odd and is bound to be the kind of source of ire in a whole bunch of the legal casework they've got coming up. And they do, I mean, they do say... You know, we, we, we take into account the context and, and stuff. I suppose the problem is is when you're when you're talking about making judgments about data and threshold d- data thresholds and that sort of thing, um, combining a number with a sort of impressionistic view is all is, is where it all it always gets a bit tricky because if there's some there's some point at which you cross the threshold into scrutiny, then you, you, the, the, the subsequent kind of judgments then become very much open to you know, very much, very, very contestable. So there's a kind of, I guess, a process issue here um, and, a, a, you know, and, and a level playing field issue as well. Um, the other, I mean, I think it's worth, also worth picking up some of the other student, student-y stuff. I mean, one thing is, is that there's very little um, additional monitoring around the area of standards. 
uh, where I think is really particularly interesting is in this question of student protection plans, because this was identified quite strongly in the report as something that, um, well, uh, well, first of all, no, very few providers were able to produce something credible. Then when they were told to resubmit, they all produced the same thing, which means that they'd all been talking to each other and saying, let's, let's give them this and see if that works. Um, and, it, uh, and, and, and the kind of outcome of that is, is that OFS has clearly is said it's going to have to produce new guidance to explain more clearly what should be in a student protection plan. Um, and some of the things uh, they sort of said, you know, this this is something that should be kind of accessible and meaningful to students. And it was written, of course, in kind of university policy language. So they sent it back and or it sort of didn't kind of um, didn't really countenance the idea that an institution might close. So they had to send it back and it, you, <laughs> it sort of... Um, uh, it, it sort of conjures up a quite a sort of funny uh, process where you know they keep sending in and keep, they keep, it keeps getting sent back and they keep adding stuff and sending it sending it again. Just what number back. It was, was two hundred and sixty six providers were asked to resubmit during the process. Quite a figure that I thought. Mm. Yeah, and and it's funny because if you read between the lines, what it looks like was happening is that before last Christmas, people were being told to resubmit straight away, and then there's a moment at which it looks like OFS basically give up, throw in the towel. And then tell all of them and everyone else that then subsequently it gets onto the register. Do you know what? You are going to have to submit, but wait until we've issued new guidance. And one of the really interesting things about that is that until now we've been told that new guidance would emerge this month. This document says that a consultation on new guidance will emerge this month. Now... Um, it could well be that OFS is very keen to consult because it likes listening to voices. On the other hand, we know it has to consult if it revises the regulatory framework itself. And it, I think my guess would be that given there's a board meeting in January that's due to discuss regulatory framework changes, that we might end up with changes to the regulatory framework in, in on student protection. The, 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 the other thing I'd say about student protection is... Um, it, the big headlines are that OFS wants to, you know, make sure that there are protection arrangements for students if a course, a campus or an institution closes. Makes lots of sense. Um, but material components was also written into the regulatory framework. And to give you a sense of that, if a big chunk of your course that's all in optional modules gets shot... Uh, in theory, that would have been covered. And similarly, if your course gets relocated, that's not a course closing or an institution closing or a campus closing, but it is a massive material change. And, and one of the things this document's totally silent on in the student protection plan section is material components. And I guess one of the really interesting things will be whether or not that, that level of, at least in theoretical protection for changes to material components of courses, makes it through the next seven or eight weeks. What what people are writing plans for is is a set of circumstances that you know there's a bunch of kind of uh, circumstances that sort of happen all the time and people still haven't quite got their heads around that 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 you know students need protection in those situations and then a whole other bunch of circumstances that barely ever happen and no one kind of knows what protection would even be available to students in those circumstances because it's 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 never been tested so I mean. It is, it is not. It is hardly surprising, I think, that this is a, this is an area of development. And I think what's kind of strange is that the whole tone of the report, more in sorrow than in anger, um, implies that people, you know, people should already know this, you know. <laughs> and I, I think there's there's a sort of version of, of of an evolving regulatory framework where we say, look, this is where we're trying to get to, and we and we understand it will be an iterative process, and we understand that we're going to need to develop it, um, and we can do that kind of. 
working together. And of course, that would be the sort of co-regulatory model that that um, that was kind of killed killed off by by uh, the Higher Education Research Act. Uh, I have to say that one of the bits I really like in there is where, because obviously one of the things that student protection plans are supposed to do is identify the risks to students, particularly you know big financial risks to the provider. And one of the things it says is, look, folks, we've looked at your SPP, then we've looked at other financial information, and in some of your information that students would never read, it says you're really worried about your finances. Not least some F, not least some FE colleges that are regulated by ESFA and have got big red lights, you know, flashing on their financial dashboards. And then the SPP says, oh, no, it's all going to be fine. You know, nothing to worry about here, and therefore we're not going to tell you much about what might happen if we collapse. <laughs> all right, so a couple of things coming through on management and governance uh, issues. One being um, OFS discovering that in some cases uh, they're not confident in institutional processes for determining who's a fit and proper person to be a governor. Now, again, it's sort of hard to know what we're talking about here because if, for example, um, so for you know, if for example, an institution is relying on governors to uh, self-declare other interests, so they might, you know, they might be sitting on a public committee or be a director of a different company and they have to you know keep keep that log updated um and you know not and in not every case they remember to do that and that is objectively a problem but in the overall scheme of things might not be such a big problem if however governors have also are not declaring interest because those interests are making them not fit and proper to be a governor then that is a problem so it's hard to tell what the sort of scale or scale and importance of it is but it does seem that the i guess um the sort of the sort of fairly fairly relaxed approach to uh, thinking about who, who, who's on your governing body and 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 are they are, are they fit and proper um, isn't really meeting OFS's uh, standards in some cases. Um, there's also some quite interesting stuff around freedom of speech. This is part of a public interest in governance condition, and um, it, it's expected all all further and higher education providers are supposed to have a policy and code of practice on freedom of speech and academic freedom. Um, and the OFS says in some cases. Um, providers, well, a don't don't have all the codes and policies in place, and in some cases don't have a sort of really well grounded understanding of what the difference between those two things is. So, for clarity, academic freedom is about protecting academic um, research um, and and making sure that there are kind of no consequences uh, to academics in terms of their employment if they if they you know take. Um, unorthodox views or, or want to you know, pursue a particular line of research, whereas freedom of speech is about protecting um, freedom of speech across the whole institution, so that's students and staff and, and, and external speakers as well. So it's just, it, it is a slightly different thing. Um, and that doesn't seem in every case to have been kind of well articulated or, or, or elaborated how it's, how it's been protected. Um, and then in a, in a few cases, you get, um, and particularly uh, the report uh, pinpoints privately owned providers, where that kind of model of governance of some, uh, of you know, of sort of inform, informed lay people who have a kind of uh, direct responsibility for the institution doesn't really seem to be in place at all. And then you've got kind of a real problem about who's responsible for the institution and, and are they able to kind of discharge duties relating to governing bodies? Um, and are they kind of regularly checking their, their effectiveness as a governing body and, and that sort of thing? So the whole... Uh, the development of meaningful governance in perhaps small providers and perhaps privately owned providers seems to be uh, an area for development, shall we say. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
This is, this was another condition where lots of providers were asked to resubmit as well. There was over fifty four percent of uh, 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 providers were asked to submit additional evidence or clarification just to just so they because the OFS said they didn't have sufficient information to assess whether the condition was actually satisfied or not, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Jim, uh, what was what 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 stood out for you in this theme? This kind of you know this governance and management theme. Well, I mean, just on the freedom of speech stuff. Um, you know, I mean, reading between the lines, what the, what the, what they're saying here is that you know there aren't lots of external speakers and you know lots of debating societies in where there are thirty HE students in a general FE college. Now, I think that's I, th- I, I think that's probably right. Um, but what what I do think is interesting about that section is that what it doesn't do is really what Joe Johnson and Sam Jima spent a year in the Telegraph promising it would do, which is crack down on snowflakes in the Russell Group. So it, so if you compare the rhetoric, which was my t- new regulator will deal with a mythical freedom of speech problem on campus with the reality in here which is oh yeah we found a few general fe colleges that you know don't have debating society policies it is really interesting to see how regulation plays out in practice in the end rather than you know in in theory there are a couple of things that i think are are fascinating also in this section one of them is there's a there's a sort of actually quite a small line in there that says uh, governing bodies aren't really testing the assurances they get from academic governance. So obviously in most universities there's this really uh, kind of traditional important split between the corporate governance, you know, the bit that that looks after the buildings and the water supply, and then the academic governance, the bit that looks after the courses. Uh, but of course in law and in OFS's eyes, it's, it is University Council or the Board of Governors that's responsible for the whole lot. And the idea is that, you know, you might well say to academic governance, you can look after this, but the Board of Governors or University Council has to test the effectiveness and, and test the robustness of the stuff it's getting from there. And actually by the looks of it, what OFS have found when it's scratched at that is in some cases just a kind of exchange of minutes from Senate or academic board. And really OFS is saying that's not good enough. And I, and I think what I'd say about that is that OFS OFS has definitely got to be in its bonnet about uh, governance, quite rightly, I think, in some cases. And, and we should expect quite a bit more action on that in the next year or so, 18 months. The other thing I pick up is the um, CUC code, which is the Committee of University Chairs code, um, which is is referenced in the... Um, in the regulatory framework as being kind of you you know this 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 is your reference point for um complying with all the kind of principles of good governance and you should you know you should have due regard to it and that sort of thing it it seems to be implied that one of the kind of one it, it Providers have said, okay, right, well, we're compliant with the CEC code, and, and they've said that to various degrees. So in some cases, they've just stated it, and then OFS has come back and said, you haven't told us how, or how you test that, or how you revise that, how you kind of keep keep track of that. And so they've had to resubmit on that basis. But there also seems to be an implication that the CEC code um, doesn't actually... Uh, Cover all of the kind of pub- all of the public interest condition, uh, interest in governance conditions, uh, from OFS's perspective. So our understanding is is that code is going to be revised, but it may be that one of the reasons providers are subject to enhanced monitoring in relation to that is is that that code has not been revised. And um, and one of the things that actually is in that code is this uh, regular uh, assurance issued from the Board of Governors. Um, on academic quality, and they, the, the, there needs to be a kind of annual uh, return saying yes, we have assured ourselves of the academic quality, and the kind of the status of that annual return um, is is unclear at present. Um, and the fact that it's in the CEC code uh, is is the sort of thing I think that I think that's creating concern. So I think this is 
maybe what happens when um, different bits of, bits of regulatory bits and pieces get, get out of alignment, you get lots of uh, enhanced monitoring and um, that 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 may just be because people are kind of working working off an old an old version of a code. And finally, Jim, is there anything else that you kind of uh, popped out at you in this report? Well, I think the other really big thing is money, money, money. So, um, you know, there have been lots of uh, you know, but lots of chunks of time where people have been speculating about the financial health of the sector and, in particular, individual providers in the middle of the sort of demographic dip. Um, what OFS finds here is that a, a few too many for its liking providers have got um, growth projections. In a way, that's nothing new. We sort of knew that from the financial sustainability report it did earlier. And basically what OFS is saying is it hasn't done any public conditions of registration and it hasn't kind of refused anyone or, or, or at least not in public refused anyone so far on the basis of their finances because OFS's calculation is effectively that although everyone's been very optimistic they would be able to make savings if their numbers didn't come true but it's clear that a lot of providers are under enhanced monitoring which is the sort of private version of that on their numbers to make sure that governing bodies and universities more generally are on top of their growth forecasts because you know broadly what OFS is saying is there is no way on God's earth you can all be right, um, which again, you know, is, is not new. Is something we we sort of knew before. And and again, this one is this one is pretty tricky for the regulator because again, this is that, uh, that that issue we've discussed earlier, which is if it was very public about some of its concerns in relation to the finances of providers, you might cause a run on the bank. It might make things worse for those providers and so on. So it does have to do a lot of enhanced monitoring in this space. And certainly it's kind of talking up in the report that it's crawling all over it, even if we can't see where it's crawling and why it's crawling in detail. <laughs> and Debbie, was um, finally, is anything from you that, um, that we've not covered that popped out at you from the report? Um, I think the, for me, the this idea, and I, I sort of keep coming back to this, is, is that, you know, by taking this outcomes-based approach, you know, this kind of wave of innovation um, and, and kind of diverse approaches to, to managing risk and and, um, and kind of doing stuff for students will, will, will be unleashed. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really early days in this new regime. And it's, you know, there's still plenty of time for that to happen. Um, and, you know, and you could argue, which I think OFS sort of consistently has, is that, you know, providers are basically kind of hooked on, on guidance and, and direction and, you know, need to be, need to be weaned off it with um, some kind of, you know, um, you know, light touch methadone, you know, oversight or something. But it's, it's sort of, it's, it's hard for me to see at this point how you get that kind of um, innovation and, and creativity being unleashed when the regulator is being so kind of stringent in some ways and unclear in others. I think it, I think it is, um, it just, it, you know, culturally it doesn't seem like a kind of great space to th for people to be thinking about how can we do this in a new way? Because if you, if you, if you don't know what your sort of starting point is and there isn't kind of evolution of common practice and common understanding from which you might then depart, it, it, it becomes very difficult. So I suspect a lot of providers are just sort of, um, looking for, looking looking for the hoops that they should be jumping through rather than thinking how do we you know how do we create our own hoops 
<laughs> that's fabulous. Yeah, and I think the, the thing that definitely jumps out at me is that the, 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 it, it, in practice, it ain't half hard, you know, to create a level playing field where you're regulating using the same principles and to some extent at least equivalent standards for, you know, a theatre company that happens to be de- delivering some HNCs and HNDs of 40 students and a, and a, and a university of 40,000 students. And it, it's not to say it's impossible. Um, but when in theory you're trying to apply the you know similar baseline outcome standards across all of those it's really really tough to do that in practice and, and one of the things that comes through really clearly in the document I think is a, a kind of ongoing tension between you know a, a allowing innovation and new providers to kind of set up and fumble and make the odd mistake but then if you go too far down that road letting established providers off the hook from some of their weaknesses in, in particular in relation to access and participation and so on and in practice where you draw that line either in the creation of the standard um, or indeed in the application of the standard is really really tough I suspect and you know I mean I, I, I am I am I am as cynical as anybody, probably more cynical than many when I look at some of the things that are are, are in the report and the way they're framed by OFS. But I think, you know, given the time frame, this is a good stab at focusing on a good set of things that in the end are actually quite important to to students, uh, you know, that are enrolled on real courses that have real lives. I think what you're describing there as well, Jim, is is that kind of question about how do you how do you how do you decide what's risky? Is it you know is it is is a provider inherently risky because it's small, or is it inherently risky because of the sorts of students it it, it recruits, or is it risky because it's sort of it's not it's not doing its processes properly to produce the outcomes that are desirable, or or it's not able to articulate that? And you know that's a sort of that's that's a bit of a journey I think that everyone's still going on to kind of understand what it what it means to make assessment of risk, and that's one of the reasons why. Um, having some kind of shared understanding about how you how you how you do risk in in a way that that make you know make make, make sense to the regulator is, is going to be i think the big a big question for, for academic and, and corporate governance right well you heard it here first jim is slightly more cynical than most people right so that is about it for this special episode to uh follow all the coverage and analysis of uh the ofs paper due followers on wonky.com you can also have a look at the episode page for this podcast where you can leave your thoughts and comments you can always subscribe to this podcast automatically just search for the wonky show um on your favorite directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, please do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks again to Jim and to Debbie and everyone at Team Wonky for making this very, very quick turnaround uh, podcast, out, getting this podcast out the door. Thank you for listening and until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.